Today's reading is Mark chapter 11, verses 27, all the way through to 12, 27. Found on page 1078 in the Pew Bible. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit with a winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to give from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed, and so with many others. Some they beat, and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally he sent to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir, come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders reject has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and is marvellous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinions, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing the hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring, and the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife shall she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. 
For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Amen. Good morning. I remembered this morning that the uh, preaching at St John's is quite succinct, opposed to my sometimes uh, verbose habits. And I remembered this this morning as my printer ground to a halt because my sermon notes were too long. Uh, So let's see how we go. It's a pleasure to be with you here this morning. Let's begin. Sapere Aldea. Dare to know. This phrase became famous when it was used by the German philosopher Immanuel Kant as he sought to describe the age of enlightenment or the age of reason as it is known. This was an intellectual and philosophical movement that dominated the thoughts of the 17th and 18th century. Everything that had once been taken for granted was questioned, not the least of which was religion. And the altered attitude of society towards religion that arose then still dominates our landscape today. By the end of the Age of Enlightenment, Friedrich Nietzsche would state, God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. Our reading today comes from the Gospel of Mark, a first century account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, a a first century Jew who claimed to be the son of God. And the Gospel of Mark supports that claim by time and time again stressing the authority of Jesus. We read through the Gospel of Mark and we discover his authority over sickness and over demons. He, <clears throat> he has authority over men and over nature. He tells men to follow and they come. He tells waves to stop and they stop. He teaches with authority. He forgives sins. He raises the dead. This carpenter acts as though he is the king of kings and his authority seems unrivaled. Now I want to ask the question, will Jesus prevail against the assault of the intellectuals? Does the authority of Jesus stand up to the siege towers of intellectual dissent or have the walls of the kingdom been broken down? Will the authority of Jesus stand today? Let's pray. Father of all wisdom, creator of light and reason, help us to understand and apply your word. We ask that you be at work this morning through your Holy Spirit to sanctify us in truth. Amen. And so we come to today's reading. And they came again to Jerusalem. Jesus, the preacher from rural Galilee, accompanied by his workaday undistinguished followers, they enter Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the political capital, it's the cultural capital, it's the spiritual, theological, intellectual capital. This is a place of scholars and learning and academics. Into this context walks the religious misfit Jesus of Nazareth, son of a carpenter. 
On the first day, he surveys the situation. On the second day, he takes definitive action, clearing the temple with a whip and chastising the temple authorities for their errors. So the authorities begin to plot how they might destroy Jesus. Uh, Frequently, Christianity seems like nothing more than a crude disturbance to the peace to those around us, one that needs to be silenced. So then on the third day, as Jesus enters the city, the battle lines are drawn. The rulers can't drag him off to the dungeon, but they will play a game of strategy to debase him and strip him of any moral authority, to rob him of popularity and to ridicule and deride him. Again, today's worldly powers still draw up these same battle lines against us. Will the authority of Jesus fall? The Jerusalem authorities were a mixed group with various religio-political positions, but now they band together against this rebel Jesus. There are four sections to today's passage. Uh, Mark 11, 27 to 33, details the first confrontation, a frontal assault from the chief priests, scribes, and elders. Next, we have the parable that Jesus taught in response to that confrontation. Then in Mark 12, 13 to 17, we see the Pharisees and the Herodians attempt somewhat of an ambush attack. And then finally in Mark 12, 18 to 27, we see the Sadducees attempt to go it alone to dethrone the king. We're actually going to look at the three confrontations first uh, and then consider the parable at the end today. Beginning with Mark 11, 27 to 33. Jesus defeats ignorance. Have you ever tried to air your opinion only to be disqualified the moment you say the word God? Whether it's uh, abortion or gender or euthanasia, any reference to your faith seems to render your argument invalid. Jesus finds himself in a similar situation, but for him the stakes are higher. He has rightly abuked his opponents for the way they desecrated the temple, and now they ask, what authority do you have? And we know the answer. Mark's opening sentence reads, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And immediately we're introduced to the herald, John the Baptist, whose ministry was to go before the Messiah and announce his coming. He identifies Jesus as the promised one, the one that all Israel had actually been waiting for. He baptizes Jesus and immediately the heavens are opened and the spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. And the voice from heaven declares, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. But as Jesus faces the religious authorities now, for him to claim to be the son of God, as indeed he is, one, they won't accept it, Two, they will crucify him. And later he is crucified, but now is not his time. So what does Jesus do? It appears as though Jesus dodges the question by asking the rulers an equally thorny question. Hey, what do you guys think about John the Baptist? The rulers didn't approve of the now deceased John, but the people, as we read, held him to be a prophet. But Jesus doesn't ask, what do you think about John? But was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? John's role was to proclaim the coming of the Messiah. His ministry reaches its climax when he baptizes Jesus, and Jesus is declared to be the Son of God. When Jesus asks, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man, he's not evading their question. No, he's actually directing them to the answer of their question, 
but in such a way that they now risk the repercussions if they continue to reject God's revelation. The authorities had witnessed the ministry of John. John's baptism was clearly from heaven. And if it was from heaven, then the ministry of Jesus, inaugurated at the baptism of John, endorsed by the baptism of John, then this too is from heaven. So how will these intellectual giants respond to the clear and simple work of God? They respond with a masquerade of ignorance. They discuss it amongst themselves not to arrive at the right answer, but to arrive at the expedient answer. Stuck between endorsing John and thereby Jesus, or disendorsing John and incurring the backlash from the people, they settle with the answer, we don't know. What we see here is a construction of ignorance to escape the lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus was the Messiah. His ministry had displayed the anointing of God. It had been powerful. It had been public. The verdict was in. In this first encounter, we see the authority of Jesus untarnished by the assault of the intellectuals. In the end, the religious authorities are forced to choose between accepting the lordship of Jesus, the Christ, or retreating into agnosticism, a defense of ignorance. And those who pride themselves in being so knowledgeable choose ignorance. We learn something from this first encounter. We learn, don't buy the lie that holds up doubt and agnosticism as the mature approach to religion. We are fed a lie that tells us it's both arrogant and stupid to claim truth in the realm of religion. Agnosticism says, yep, there is a God, but we can't be certain who he is or what he is like. It's not offensive to our present culture. Jesus says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus defeats ignorance. Now let's consider Jesus' confrontation with the Sadducees. The Sadducees were powerful and they dominated both the priesthood and the Sanhedrin. They were highly educated, almost aristocratic in a way. Oddly, they accepted only the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, and they, they didn't believe in angels or a resurrection to eternal life, doctrines that are explicitly taught later in the Old Testament and in the Psalms and Prophets. Now, to attempt to discredit Jesus uh, and the idea of the resurrection, the Sadducees ask about a woman who is at various times married to multiple different brothers who keep dying on her. And so they pose the question, if a woman should end up sequentially married to seven brothers... Whose wife will she be at the resurrection? Jesus is not shaken. He destroys their objection and then he moves to the offensive. The Sadducees have fallen into error because they do not comprehend that God, the all-powerful, can exceed the categories of their present understanding. The Sadducees consider that the resurrected state would have to be similar to the present order of things. Marriage continues as before. Jesus doesn't shy away from deba debating this smarty pants brigade first he says they're in error because they do not know the scriptures to an outsider this is like watching your local plumber tell the pope he doesn't know catholicism right uh, <clears throat> second they are in error because they do not know the power of god god can operate outside the realm of their understanding and the resurrection will be vastly different to that which they currently envisage and then dismiss Jesus tells them that the resurrected state will be similar in a way to the angels, marriage ceasing to exist. 
And as to the scriptures and the doctrine of the resurrection, while the resurrection is explicit in the prophets, Jesus turns to the Torah, the Torah that the Sadducees so loved. Exodus 3.6, God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He was their God, yes, but he continues to be their God. And as he is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living, well, then even the Torah, the Torah that the Sadducees so much love, teaches the resurrection. Jesus' example here has a lot today, uh, has a lot to teach us today about biblical interpretation. I don't want to equate the Sadducees with modern liberalism, uh, but they've made the same mistake that modern liberals now epitomize. Theological liberalism markets itself as intelligent, progressive Christianity. This is the Christianity that was born out of the age of reason, out of the Enlightenment. It's informed by wisdom and science. It's not superstitious. It doesn't have to believe in all that supernatural. In reality, it's a miserable retreat by those who do not know the scriptures, albeit they might study them very hard, and importantly, they do not know the power of God. I was talking to a patient at the hospital and the topic turned to religion. He identified as a Christian. He had a PhD uh, in religion. Soon, and with mild condescension, he was explaining to me the time that Jesus walked on the water. There was a sandbank you see. It was dark. Jesus was walking along the sandbank, and he just happens to reach the boat at the exact time that the boat reaches the shore. The important thing is not that Jesus walked on water. No one can do that. But that he stilled the storm in the disciples' hearts. And he added, even today, Jesus can still, storm, still the storm in people's hearts. That's the real miracle. Now, I can tell you that the storm in my heart by this stage had reached quite a tempest because it's rare that you hear such high nonsense. But if you do not accept the power of God, then this interpretation, inept as it is, is probably actually the best you've got. Theological liberalism assumes the Bible to be full of error but claims that the accuracy of the Bible is irrelevant. It's about the morals. But Jesus here teaches the reality of the resurrection based upon the tense of a single verb in the Old Testament. If you are to believe Jesus, you must, you must believe the accuracy of the Bible just as he did. When you read the word, accept it as it is and allow the power of God to exceed the confines of your own limited understanding. Jesus defeats skepticism. Now let's consider Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees and the Herodians as outlined in verses 13 to 17. These guys execute a very tactical assault. First, they butter Jesus up with some flattery. You don't care who someone is, do you, Jesus? You tell it straight. And then the catch. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Jesus has two options. Firstly, he could flare with nationalistic zeal cloaked in religious piety. We have no king but God, he could say. I do not in any way support paying taxes to this illegitimate Gentile overlord. 
This would make him very popular with the people for about 30 minutes until the Romans arrive and drag him off. Alternatively, Jesus could endorse the Roman authorities in their tax, uh, but this would make him very unpopular with the people. Answer one way and he loses his face. Answer the other way and he loses his head. But again, the authority of Jesus is not rocked. Why? Because Jesus is the Son of God. If the Roman overlords truly posed an impediment to his purposes, he would have already sorted them out. As it is, his answer betrays the fact that the sovereign God has permitted Roman occupation and Jesus won't be manipulated into opposing it. Taking a coin, Jesus asks, whose image is this? Caesar's. Then give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Jesus isn't trapped by foolish bravado. Now, Australians, we almost worship foolish bravado. We've got Eureka, we've got Ned Kelly. We love our rebel. There's a caution in this passage that we never allow our faith to be hijacked by an irrelevant crusade, much as the Pharisees and the Herodians here try and hijack the ministry of Jesus. The authority of Jesus will not be manipulated. It won't be harnessed for ulterior ends. Jesus seeks to usher in the kingdom of God. That is his end. And that too must be our aim. This isn't to say that the kingdom is unconcerned with the transformation of society. We remember in James 1.27 that it says that true religion is helping orphans and widows in their need. We remember that slavery in Britain was brought down by a small group of devout Christians motivated by their religious conviction. And we can give thanks to God for that. But we remember that many a times others actually tried to harness Christianity to support the practice of slavery. Our passion, our passion is for the kingdom of God and we can't let anyone hijack our faith to a lesser end. Today, the forces of darkness still delight when the soldiers of Christ are drawn down a rabbit hole to fight a modern-day Caesar, but they forget the true gospel mandate given to them by their commander-in-chief. So returning to what Jesus says here, he's got his catch as well. He goes on to say, and give to God the things that are God's. The coin is made by Caesar in the image of Caesar. It belongs to Caesar. Give it to him. But what bears the image of God? What has he made in his own image? As Josh pointed out before, Charlie does. You do. You do. Every one of us. We. We bear the image of God. We've been created in his image. We are the coin stamped with his seal. You want to give to God, your coin won't cut it. You need to give him your very self in love and worship and devotion because you are his. You've been minted in his image and you belong to him. Church history suggests that Mark initially wrote his gospel account to encourage Christians in Rome enduring the persecution of Emperor Nero. Some of these Christians would be led to their deaths because while they pay taxes to Caesar, they would not give so much as a pinch of incense in worship to the statue of Caesar. Why? Because they belonged to God and their worship belonged to God and they had given themselves wholly to God. And to worship anything less, sorry, to worship anything else would be to rob God of what was rightfully his. Pay taxes? Sure. Pay homage to the statue? No. 
They gave to God the things that are God's, even to the point of death. Are you giving to God what is God's? Are you giving him your very self? Jesus defeats autonomy. Finally, let's consider the parable at the beginning of chapter 12. In all three confrontations, Jesus decisively demonstrates his authority. But the religious authorities seem unmoved. We don't see them falling in behind Jesus joining his ranks. Why not? They were supposed to be the guides that would lead the people to God. But now God turns up and they seek his death. Why? Jesus tells a parable of a landowner who carefully invests himself in a vineyard, providing everything necessary to ensure a good harvest. He then leases it to tenants to work the land. When the harvest comes, he sends servants to his vineyard to collect some of his produce. Multiple servants are mistreated in many ways, even killed. Finally, the son is sent, and the son too is killed. When Jesus, the son of a carpenter, enters the temple that morning, he's confronted by the religious rulers, and they ask, what authority do you have? Jesus alludes to his divine authority, verified through the ministry of John the Baptist. Now Jesus, the Son of God, turns the table and asks in return, what authority do you guys have? The meaning of the parable would have been clear to the first century Jew. The vine was Israel and the religious authorities were the tenants entrusted to cultivate its fruit but they have abused the vineyard to their own ends. They've rejected those sent by God in times past, even at times murdering the prophets. And now the son has come. As one author puts it, the son goes as the father's representative with the father's authority to the father's property to claim the father's due. What authority do the tenants have? But they're going to reject him. Why? It's not because they do not recognize his authority, but because they do not wish to submit to his authority. The Jerusalem rulers are but tenants, and now the son has arrived, but they do not want to surrender the vineyard, and so they will kill him. And how true is that today? The thought is that if humanity can kill God, then humanity can become God. The serpent has now for thousands of years been tempting us to rebel against our benevolent father. You will become like God, he says. And so Eve ate the apple, so the men of the plain built Babel, so the Sanhedrin crucified the Messiah, and so today we assume that we have rationalized God out of the universe. So Frederick Nietzsche, God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. In every generation, humanity continually seeks to usurp God. We explain our own origins, we plot our own destinies, and we do so completely independent of a higher power. But the parable doesn't end there with the tenants ruling the vineyard. Three things will happen. First, the father will destroy those tenants. Second, the father will give the vineyard to others. Most assume this implies the spread of the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, the third point comes from Jesus' quotation of Psalm 118 that he finishes the parable with. At the close of the parable, one might conclude that the father has foolishly lost his only son. Yes, the son will be rejected, but as the psalm tells us, this was the Lord's doing. This was preordained. And though he has been rejected, 
ultimately he will be glorified. He will be the cornerstone, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The authority of Jesus has triumphed. Jesus defeats defeat. Jesus enters Jerusalem, and his authority comes under attack. And no less today is the authority of Christ questioned. Next slide, thanks. When the doubters attack it, know that the evidence has been presented, the verdict is in. They can question and doubt as much as they like. But you, you will stand strong behind him who has been revealed from heaven to be the king of kings. The authority of Jesus is not shaken by those who hide behind a barricade of ignorance. Jesus defeats ignorance. Jesus confronts the Sadducees who robe themselves in religion, but they do not know the power of God. They would rob God of his potency. You, you must stand in the truth. God dictates the confines of science. Science doesn't dictate the confines of God. Why should you let modern thought dictate what our almighty God can and cannot do? When you lose sight of an omnipotent, creating, miracle-working God, you lose sight of God. The authority of Jesus will not be constrained by our finite categories of comprehension. And to come under him, we must submit to his reign. We must accept both his revelation, the scripture, and his power. Jesus confronts the Pharisees and Herodians. His authority cannot be harnessed by men. Rather, his authority is complete over men. His authority extends to you, your very self. You belong to him. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And finally, though the world tries to rebel against the authority of Jesus, yet the authority of Jesus, the Son of God, is enduring. Though his authority was not accepted in the temple courts that day, though he would be ridiculed and mocked and later killed, Yet the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvellous in our eyes. Stand under his authority. You know that the authority of Jesus triumphs over the world, triumphs even over the grave. And one day we will see all things placed beneath his feet. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's close in prayer. God, eternal and almighty, we come before your throne. We place ourselves under your authority. We desire to submit to your rule. The world derides and rejects, but we know that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth and the life, the very Son of God. We pray for those who hide behind doubt. We pray for those who retreat, unable to comprehend your power. We pray for a working of your sovereign power that can draw sinners to yourself. We pray for all those who foolishly cherish their independence above your blessing. We pray that you might expand our love and gospel witness to them. We pray for ourselves, so often stiff-necked, slow to bow, unwilling to submit. Forgive us. Patiently bear with us. Transform us towards obedience and submission. Thank you for the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that guarantees us forgiveness of sins and a glorious future. Amen.